Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing on in the book of Hebrews, and we'll be starting chapter 4. And as we like to do, we open with a word of prayer. Craig, would you please lead us? Heavenly Father, again, we come before you. Thank you so much for your inspired word that you give us that you haven't left us as orphans. You've given us the Holy Spirit to read and guide us and direct us through your scriptures. We just pray your blessing on the study tonight, that you would be glorified, that you would be honored, and that you would be pleased with the discussion and the study. We give this to you in your precious son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Craig. And welcome, Mark. Well, thank you, Tom. It's good to be back with everyone. This letter to the Hebrews that we're examining is considered quite difficult by many people because the timeline of the Bible that is taught in most churches is, I believe, flawed. We have a photograph of a timeline that is available on the website. I will put a link on the story to the timeline. Oh, perfect. Thank you. The timeline, even though we developed it while looking at the book of Acts, is valid equally so for this letter to Hebrews, and it may be even more helpful in understanding this letter than it was in looking at Acts, because what we have is a systematic comparison. We have a Judean writer writing to a Judean audience in the Greek language, in all likelihood, these are a writer and an audience who are not in Palestine or Judea proper, but they are Judeans that are part of the scattering throughout the Roman Empire that had been the fact for hundreds of years. And our writer is making this systematic argument that the new age, which is dawning, is far superior to the old age, which is winding down. And so we will see a series of warnings that the consequences of slipping back into the old age are catastrophic beyond imagination. And we're going to see a series of comparisons in multiple ways between the new age that is dawning and the old age, which is winding down. So we've already seen that the new age contains a new covenant which is superior to the old one. 
we haven't gone into the details of that yet, but we've seen that the Old Covenant was delivered by servants and messengers. Moses was a great man, but he was just a servant to the house of Yahweh. The New Covenant has been delivered by the son and heir rather than a servant. And this is how the argument began. So we had, in chapter 2, we had a great warning another warning, and then we have some of the qualifications of Christ there in chapter 2. And again, always comparing back to the old age, the prophets, Moses, and then in the third chapter, we had a distinct comparison between Jesus and Moses. And then we had a second warning that the rejection of Jesus is far more serious than the rejection of Moses. And we hopefully will recall, particularly as we continue on in the book, what happened to those Israelites who rejected the leadership of Moses. In fact, we ended that they were unable to enter the promised land because of unbelief. They were wandering around in the wilderness. All they had known was Egypt. It was something that they were promised, rather the land of Canaan, somewhere that they had not seen. They had to accept it by faith, and they later had to accept it by the words of the spies. Ten out of the twelve proved to be unfaithful and uh, fearful. So they could not have confidence that this was really a place that they could possess, even though God told them that they could. And they were unable then to enter, and they died in the wilderness. That's kind of how we ended up chapter 3. As we begin looking here at chapter 4, let's please read the first 10 verses. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found falling short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now, we who have believed enter that rest, just as God had said, so I declare on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he said, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had heard the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again sent a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Thank you very much. Okay. So, again, this letter is steeped in the principle of typology that the persons, events, and places in the stories of what we call the Old Testament all pointed to the spiritual truth that is Jesus Christ. 
and this was commonly accepted by uh, many Catholics and nearly all Protestants in Europe and in America until the advent of dispensationalism, which was still kind of a fringy thing in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, but became more and more accepted after the publication of the Schofield Bible in 1908. This letter to Hebrews is so steeped in typology, I just can't see how any thinking person who is a dispensationalist or Christian Zionist can reconcile it to the rest of their Bible. And I guess I should go and read uh, Schofield's notes to see <laughs> what he does with this. Chuck may keep me straight on that. But uh, th- this I, I do have I do have a question, Mark. Yeah. This word uh, rest, enter into my rest. Can you give us a better translation of that, or is that a good translation? Well, in the Greek, it is a separate word, which I can't pronounce properly. Katapausis means a dwelling place where you can rest is more or less what it means in the Greek. Normally, in the Hebrew, this would be Sabbath or Shabbat. And, of course, the law of Moses had different kinds of Sabbaths. The seventh day is, of course, the most famous one. There were also other special days that were considered days of rest. It doesn't have anything to do with death, or does it? Well, not directly, because all of these things, rest and Sabbath, are all types of Jesus Christ. And really the rest here in the narrative is the promised land, or the land of Palestine. This was where they they were wandering in the wilderness. They couldn't stop. They couldn't build houses. They couldn't really rest. You have to be alert to survive. It was difficult. So they were looking forward to a place where they could rest. And that's our immediate context here of the Exodus. But all of these things point to Jesus Christ as the true rest. The believer finds a home where he can rest in Christ. And that passes for the rest of your physical life, and it continues right on when your physical body fails and stops functioning. So in that way, it is related to death. But our writer is going to further develop this idea that the rest the Israelites were looking for in the wilderness was a picture of the rest that the Israelites that he is writing to have received as part of the body of Christ. And he is arguing with them not to leave that rest, not to go back out after they've entered in as the Israelites did in the wilderness. They rejected God's leadership to get them to the promised land, and they wanted to go back to Egypt uh, where they started. And because of that rebellion, they all died in the wilderness. And he's basically laying down threat to them here that if they leave the, the true rest, the true promised land, 
which is Christ, they will die in the wilderness just as the Israelites of old did. Did that address your question? Very well. Thank you. Okay. You know, he's starting out here in verse 1 that there is this promise laid before them of entering his rest. This is the rest in Christ which God purposed before the earth was created, as he'll tell us here. And he doesn't want them to fall short of it. We have heard the good news as they did, the Israelites of old in the wilderness. The message did them no good because they had no confidence in it back then. And then continuing into verse 3, it is we who have believed that enter into that rest. We enter in to Christ's body through faith or confidence that this rest exists. This rest is nothing that we can lay our hands on. It is not a piece of real estate in spite of all of the book bags uh, that they give to all the tourists in Israel today that have Genesis 12 stenciled on them that claim that the physical land of Palestine is that promise. That was just a temporary figure pointing to the true rest, the true promised land, which is Jesus Christ. And then he quotes here from the 94th and 95th Psalm about God getting really angry because of their disbelief and swearing that they will not enter into his rest. And in fact, when we go back and read Exodus, we find that they all fell uh, in the wilderness. Oh, it's not Exodus, but later on in the uh, journey, still in the books of Moses. All of the men who were grown when they left Egypt died in the wilderness except for Joshua and Caleb. And, and so that happened to that generation. The psalmist is warning yet another generation of Israelites. And then our writer in the first century is warning the last generation of physical Israelites that this can happen to them just as it happened to previous generations. And here at the end of verse 3 is where we find that God's works have been finished since before the world's foundation. In other words, the, the spiritual plan of God to create the perfect dwelling place for himself on earth, the so-called third temple, this was all done before he even created the physical creation. The physical creation only came about so that God's true purpose, his real work, which is to create his new spiritual creation, could occur just as he had purposed and determined since before the beginning. And then moving into verse 4 here, he's quoting back Genesis 2-2 about God resting on the seventh day. And this is the word Shabbat, I believe, in the Hebrew. He rested on the seventh day. And that seventh day of creation, it becomes a picture 
of the gospel, which is the true rest for everyone, rest in Christ. Then he quotes again, he's already quoted it once, but Psalm 95, they shall not enter into my rest. And it's a serious warning, again, that they should be alarmed that this could happen to them just as it had happened to previous generations. It's alluded to here a couple of times that the gospel, the good news, was preached to the old Israelites back there by Moses. And it's it's made to sound as if it's very similar to the good news that is being preached by the apostles and the entire body of Christ in the first century. And, in fact, I we tried to show as we looked at the Gospel of John and the Book of Acts that there is a continuum between the old and the new scriptures that the Gospel is really there all through the prophets and all through the books of Moses and so on. And our writer here seems to also have a strong uh, sense that that is uh, a true understanding. Disobedience will cause the gospel to fail both in the days of Moses and here in the days of the apostles. And then he continues on there in verse 7, quoting uh, more out of the 95th Psalm. It doesn't, we don't know for sure if David actually wrote this, but that doesn't affect the argument. We see this warning from the age of David, at least, to the Israelites of that day to not harden their hearts. That's a bad condition in all those stories of the Old Testament. When someone's heart became hardened, it usually wasn't a good sign that they would pull through in the end. And again, we can tell here that this rest that Chuck asked about is not the physical land of Palestine. The Israelites of the second generation entered into Palestine under the leadership of Joshua. And it's uh, of note to know that the Greek name Jesus is the Aramaic name Yeshua. It's Joshua and Jesus have the same name in uh, Hebrew or Aramaic. And there are intended similarities between the two of them because the Israelites entered into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua back in the book of Joshua. And this, of course, typified the new spiritual Israel of God entering into Christ under the leadership of Christ, uh, Yeshua, as well. So there's an intended uh, parallel here, uh, as there is with all of these stories that we find in the Old Testament. But obviously, this directly contradicts one of the basic tenets of Christian Zionism, that the rest that Christ was to provide was not the same physical real estate that Joshua had already given to Israel. 
And it even says back there that when Joshua finished, that he had fulfilled that original land promise to Abraham. It was not left open-ended and unfulfilled, but that was not the true purpose of it. It only was a shadow of something far greater to come at the dawning of the new age. And so because this real estate is not the true rest of God, there still remains a Sabbath rest to the people of God, as it tells us there in verse 9. And this is this is joint participation. We only achieve this as we are joined to Christ in his body. We give up mere human life, which is the life of Adam that was the life of the old age. And the ceremony of baptism or immersion in water uh, signifies this, where the believer is immersed in water, signifying uh, death to the old life, and then is resurrected, raised out of the water into newness of life, which is the shared, uncreated life of God that we have by being joined to Christ in his body. As Paul writes, uh, he's talking about marriage. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak of Christ and the church. The two shall be one flesh. And if we become one flesh with God, we share in the eternal, uncreated life of God. We can discern a lot of that from this letter written to Hebrews because he talks about God's life, angelic life, and then human life, and then Christ jumping down below the angels to take on human life so that he can then be joined to those humans who would believe on him and impart to them his own uncreated, divine, eternal life. And that eternal life is the true rest, being joined as one flesh to Christ is the true rest that God had in mind from before the beginning. And verse 10 just kind of uh, drives this home, alluding again to the 95th Psalm and to Genesis 2, that this is the true rest entering into this spiritual rest that God had purposed. And there's a lot of scholarly comments on how God rested on the seventh day of creation. And then we we saw in the prologue to the Gospel of John, when we looked at that some time ago, how that in that narrative, the entire gospel or life of Christ becomes the seventh day of the new creation narrative of the new spiritual creation and so you know that's kind of a topic for advanced study but i don't it doesn't really change the gist of what we're doing here to uh, spend a lot of time as far as exactly how god rested on on the seventh day at that time The, the point of it is is that the true rest the true sabbath rest is 
in Christ, to be joined into him in his spiritual body. All right, any other questions or comments there uh, down through verse 10? If not, let's go on and read verses 11 through 13. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom he must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Oh, great. Thank you. All right, so the audience here is encouraged again to make effort to achieve this true Sabbath rest. Remember, they are about to be faced with the great temptation to just relax, sit back, and become good everyday Judeans in their synagogue and kind of lay low about this controversial guy, uh, Yeshua of Nazareth. And that's all they would probably would have to do to escape the persecution that is coming on them very, very soon. They're going to have to work and mentally prepare and even, as we'll learn later, be ready to lay down their physical lives, if need be, to make sure that they will enter in to the true rest of God. And then in verses 12 and 13, the Word of God is described here using the simile of a two-edged sword. And, you know, if they're trying to avoid persecution in their heart, God will know it. They're not going to be able to give lip service to the believers about Jesus, but deny Jesus to the rulers of the synagogue and the Roman authorities when the time comes. So they've got to be mentally prepared for this choice that lays in their near future at the time this letter was written. And again, when a preacher takes this letter and tries to apply it to us today without acknowledging the context, the time in which it was written, the audience to which it was written, you basically get confusing drivel uh, that means nothing. There, there was a specific time, what we call the Great Tribulation, which was upon this audience. And they had a grave choice that had to be made. And they couldn't straddle the fence. That, that was not going to work. Mark, do you think these audiences were in... Roman territory? I mean, everything was Roman territory, but Rome proper, or were they in Galatia, or where were they? Well, we just don't know. We know that there were some 
people from Rome with the author when he wrote this, but they may have been traveling, you know, they may have been outside of Rome. We know it's somewhere in the Roman world where Greek is spoken, because virtually the entire Greek-speaking world was part of the Roman Empire at this time, but it was just not Palestine where Aramaic would have been the common language and the Bible that would have been used uh, in that region, but we just don't know. Some believe it was Alexandria, Egypt, but there's a lot of speculation. We just we just simply don't know. So we, we just know that it was a Greek-speaking synagogue community, but that could be everywhere. Egypt spoke Greek at that time, all of present-day Turkey, Cyprus, Greece, Italy, they all spoke Greek. So we just can't tell. So the idea of judgment and discernment is uh, built into the simile of the two-edged sword here in verse 12. And, and truly there was a judgment coming for the entire Judean nation, which would include all of these synagogue communities scattered throughout the world. And so they needed to be ready. They needed to understand they couldn't hide from God any more than those in the wilderness could hide from God. All right, so moving on, this argument builds progressively. And now he's bouncing back to the idea of Christ as the great high priest who has gone into the spiritual realm. The word heaven or heavenly I grew up thinking that this was either right on top of the clouds or somewhere out there in space, but that's totally wrong. <laughs> that we're talking about the spiritual realm. I think a more apt parallel would be an alternate dimension, as is depicted in uh, certain science fiction movies. The spiritual realm is not far off beyond the furthest galaxy or even above the clouds, but it is everywhere because God is in the spiritual realm, and yet he dwells in our hearts. So when we see the word heaven, that they did describe it as heavenly bodies, but they're, they're speaking of the spiritual realm. Christ has passed into the spiritual realm, and he is a far greater high priest, and he'll develop this later, than was available in the old age of Moses. Let's maintain our confession that Jesus is Lord, as we would say today. That was what it was going to come down to. If you could maintain that confession, you would probably be persecuted to the point of physical death, but you would achieve the goal. Verse 15, our high priest is not one who can't sympathize with our frailties. I mean, after all, he maintained his confession to the point of physical death. So he has already gone before and experienced what many of this audience are being asked to prepare for. He's endured a trial in every aspect like ourselves, and yet he did not uh, sin while undergoing this great trial. So let us approach the throne of grace with confidence in order to receive mercy and find grace for timely help. They were going to need help. 
they were going to go through something that most of us cannot even begin to imagine. There's another great contrast here, because under the old age, the throne of God was the mercy seat. And uh, how easy was it for an Israelite to approach the mercy seat in the old age? Anyone feel free to jump in and answer. Almost impossible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, almost impossible. It it was uh, walled off in the Holy of Holies, and uh, there were guards outside, and, you know, they would have killed you if you had tried. Only one Israelite, the high priest, was allowed to, to approach the throne, and that was once a year. And did he do that in confidence? Does anyone remember? No, no confidence at all. No, no. Josephus tells us that they were so terrified that he would be struck dead by God that they tied a rope around his ankle, and they had bells tied in the hem of his garment so they could listen to make sure he was still moving and alive. So one high priest approached the throne in fear and trembling once a year, and yet as we will see, under the high priesthood of Yeshua Messiah, all of his new spiritual body could approach the throne with great confidence. So they have a lot more help available to them than the Israelites of old did uh, before. But the choice is basically the same that's laid before them. All right, any uh, any thoughts or comments here on the last part of the chapter? In verse 9 where it talks about the Sabbath rest, is that an argument like the uh, there's many who profess to, that we have to follow the Sabbath religiously on Saturday. And, uh, you know, my argument here is that it's a spiritual rest and, you know, as you become a Christian and really follow God's ways, you know, his disciples of Jesus, that that is his rest. Uh, that is the Sabbath. Yeah, absolutely. That's what we've been trying to point out, is that the true Sabbath rest is Jesus Christ. The original physical seventh-day Sabbath rest was intended to be a gift to man, so that his masters and overlords and the economy wouldn't force him to work seven days a week. But the Pharisees and other leaders of the Judean nation by the first century had turned it into a terrible burden, which continues uh, to this day into rabbinic Judaism and those that uh, kind of control things in in the modern nation of Israel, which has no connection to the Israel of the Bible, but this tiny minority uh, in that country have imposed all these rules and regulations as, again, the elevator, you're not even allowed to push an elevator button on Saturday in Israel today. So it had been twisted and perverted. But again, we do have so many. There were many Protestants after the Reformation who were confused on a lot of these points. So uh, Calvin and others decided that Sunday was the Christian Sabbath. And a famous movie when I was younger, Chariots of Fire, 
talks about an Olympic runner who was a good Presbyterian and, and uh, could not run on the Sabbath, which he called Sunday. And yet Paul writes and tells, I think it's in the Colossian letter, that those Sabbaths were shadows of spiritual things in Christ and that people that were imposing those physical observances on the new spiritual body of Christ are, uh, yeah, here it is, I found it in Colossians 2.16. Don't let anyone judge you in eating or in drinking or in part of a feast or of a new moon or of Sabbaths, which are a shadow of coming things, but the body is of Christ. There it is right there. Yeah, it's it's pretty well spelled out, but yet <laughs> that doesn't keep a lot of people, well, many fewer than, say, 150 years ago, but still mm-hmm. a lot of people will argue the need for physical Sabbath-keeping along with the spiritual truth of our Sabbath rest being in Christ. We're seeing a lot of Messianic activity now in Christian churches being reinstated rather deliberately by the what we call the Messianic movement, whereas they're inducing Christian churches to adopt more and more ancient temple practices in an effort to um, get themselves closer to God. Any comments on that? Well, again, this would be another way to build up support for the uh, fraudulent uh, dispensational hermeneutic or method of Bible interpretation, which claims that there is yet another coming age in which the law of Moses will be restored and all of these ceremonies will be restored. So it's it's exactly the same thing as the dog returning to its own vomit. Uh, the, these, these things were intended to be flawed, inferior shadows of what God ultimately had in mind. And so to be your you're subtly brainwashing people to give up the correct spiritual view and to go back to this carnal, physical view of the Zionists. So it's a very uh, smooth move in that regard, but I believe it's insidious and evil. Now, there there has always been a movement of, uh, of rabbinic Jews who come to believe in Christ and they continue to follow the traditions of the rabbinic community so that they can be accepted and have an influence on other rabbinic Jews. And this, perhaps, is the legitimate manifestation of the Messianic Jewish movement, would be to um, maintain a foot in the door, so to speak, so that believers can continue to point how... Christ fulfills all of the promises of Messiah to uh, Jews. But to actually draw in, I mean, non-Jewish Christians have always been welcome into those assemblies, but to be going out and recruiting and to be trying to spread those same practices into churches that are non-Jewish, I believe is this insidious uh, idea of preparing people to turn aside from a proper understanding of the gospel. Thanks. Great answer. All right, Mark. Well, thank you very much for that very insightful lesson. Look forward to continuing on.
Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.